All right, let's gear up and start the mission. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Today, we're going to continue with some readings from book two of the trilogy Self-Inflicted Wounds, which takes place in the year 2000 in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia now. Then it was still Yugoslavia. So let's set up the few chapters I'm going to read. We found out last week that Alexei Bukharin did not die in the Danube after all. He managed to get himself out of the water into a small boat and then into the apartment of Irina Pishkatova, the stripper that he met at the club called White Knights, where he encountered the Russians, one of whom had the knife fight with him. But he managed to regain consciousness, had the stripper call Mai, and Mai came to get him. And now they're back at the house that she has rented in Belgrade. And the commander of the police secretariat there, Vojislav Ranovicic, whom they've engaged as a contact or a, a stringer in Belgrade, has found some medical attention for Alexei. And we'll pick up with the chapter where the doctor has just arrived and has begun working trying to save Alexei's life. So let's get started with Dangerous Truths, Chapter 8, Scars with Character. Renovicic moved Irina Pishkatova to a chair where she sat sniveling, legs tucked beneath her. Renovicic sat on the sofa across from her and stared, his best Belgrade policeman's glare producing the tears. Their standoff lasted for almost an hour when the creak of a stair tread drew their attention. Renovicic rose when he saw Maia and went to her. What does the doctor say? He can't believe he's alive, but he's working on the wound still. There's some infection. Her weary eyes looked toward the second floor. He's strong. He'll fight. She flushed as if embarrassed and said, I'll go make some coffee. No, Renovitz said. Sit, rest. I make coffee. There might have been a smile, but she nodded. I hope your wife wasn't disappointed I took you away from her bed two nights in a row. Renovicic smiled and said, Your timing was better tonight. A tight laugh escaped her throat, and she sat on the end of the sofa, her eyes now on Irina, who could only look away. An hour or so before dawn, his oversized bag slung on one shoulder, the doctor came downstairs to find Renovicic the only one awake. Renovicic motioned for silence and looked to find Maia still asleep on the sofa. 
he went to his cousin and drew him to the side. Well, by all rights, he should be dead. I gave him what plasma I had, pulled out the stitches, recleaned the wound, sewed him up again. I pumped him full of antibiotics. I only used a local anesthetic because I thought putting him under would probably kill him. I thought he'd passed out, but when I finished stitching, he said, Nice work. I like scars with character. No one was more surprised than me when his blood pressure recovered to low normal. Thank you for coming. No, thank you, Voya. You are the only one left in the family to acknowledge my existence. Renovasich clapped him on the shoulder. Well, don't get the idea you hold anything over me. When do I get paid? Renovasich crossed to the sofa and called Maya's name. She bolted upright, and he took a step back. The doctor, he said. He's finished. She rose and brushed back strands of her French braid. How is he? she asked the doctor. The doctor repeated what he'd told Renovasich and added, He should stay in bed uh, five days, at least three. Plenty of rest after that. Also lots of fluids, beef broth. Frankly, he lost enough blood, another drop, and you would be at the morgue. Do you know how to switch out ivy bags, push a drug into the tubing? Yes. I have left enough IVs for tomorrow and a week's worth of antibiotics. Syringes after he is off the IV. Three shots a day. Any questions? Maya shook her head. You'll be wanting your fee. Be reasonable, Renovasic said to his cousin, his tone warning. Three thousand Deutschmarks, the doctor said. Maya took out a money clip and counted some bills. Five thousand, she said, for your silence. The doctor nodded his thanks and tucked the bills away in his jacket. Later, Voya, he said, turning to leave. Oh, I almost forgot. You are Maya, right? He told me to ask you if you got a location off the tracer. What, whatever that means. Good night. He let himself out. Tracer? Renovasich echoed. Jesus wept. I can't believe I forgot that. She started up the stairs. Wait, what tracer? Alexei was going to put a tracer on the Russian's vehicle. I didn't check the computer for its location. Well, you had other things on your mind. That shouldn't have interfered. She continued up the stairs and kept climbing toward the third level. Renovasich woke Irina and again cuffed her. Come with me, he said, and half dragged her up the stairs after Maia. At the top level, he pushed her down on the uppermost step and put her arms around the thick post there. He fastened the remaining cuff on her other wrist. Glaring at Renovasich, Irina gave the post a shake. Do that again, and I will send her out here. Irina rested her head against the post and began to cry yet again. Sharanya, Renovasich muttered and entered the attic. At the desk, Mai's eyes stayed fixed on the booting laptop. She didn't acknowledge Renovasich when he came to stand behind her. 
A blue background filled the laptop screen, followed by the familiar UN logo. A message scrolled across the top, official business only access limited. Below that was a box showing something was downloading. Beneath the box was a line reading, Time left to download less than one minute. A satellite tracked the trace's signal and stored the locations for the past 36 hours, 72 if we're lucky. It's a tiny little thing and the battery life is limited, Mai said. But he would have placed the tracer more than 48 hours ago. I said if we're lucky. But the data would upload to the satellite until the battery died. At the very least, we might be able to narrow down a search area. She looked up at Renovasich. You haven't released that he's alive, have you? No, since I did not know that until I got here. Good. The Russians will think you are still waiting for the body to surface. Surely their dead companion has spooked them to move locations. Have you released his name? No. A more thorough search of his body turned up three more identity cards, so we did not know which name to release. All the news said was if foreigner's body had been found. Death attributed to ethnic hooligans, of course. You do not seriously think they will be at the same hideout. Spies depend on luck a great deal, Voya. An aerial photo appeared, a satellite image of Belgrade. The picture shifted, changing every few seconds as it zoomed in. The movement stopped, and a red light blinked. White nights, Mai said. Her fingers flew over the keyboard and the time index fast-forwarded. The red dot moved in fits and starts in the picture. Why is it moving around so much? Renovasich asked. The driver's using evasive in case he was being followed. Mai leaned forward, eyes not leaving the screen. The dot eventually stopped and began to flash again. More typing and the image zoomed further in and showed a group of buildings surrounded by forest. I know that nunnery, Renovasich said. On the edge of the city, an order of orthodox nuns, but only a few elderly sisters remain. There used to be a couple hundred of them. They ran a school, a bakery, and a number of other small businesses. Renovasich pointed to the buildings and said, Dormitory, school, kitchen, dining hall, the main church there. I patrolled that area my first year in the police. The nuns would always have a cup of hot tea and slices of fresh bread with butter ready when I passed by. They were an odd lot, though conservative and absolutely paranoid about rape. They believe the Koran teaches it is a Muslim man's duty to rape Christian holy women. They have died off one by one. Maybe they are all gone by now. Would the sisters have taken in Russian men, especially if they were orthodox? Mai asked. I suspect they would think God sent them. I'm going to fast forward to see if the tracer moves. She pushed a legal pad and a pen toward Renovasich. Write down everything you remember about the layout of the place, entrances, exits, and so on. Why? Because I'm going to check it out. You, me, and twenty of my men. Not your operation yet, Voya. Then my lips are sealed. All that means is I go in without intel, and you'll end up like Pishkatova, 
chained to the stairs. I would almost like to see you try. She smiled to show she'd enjoy that prospect as much as he. I said, almost, Renovicic said. Voya, let's not descend on Mars yet. Let me reconnoitre. You need to stay here with Alexei and Pishkatova. He straightened, chest puffing out with pride. To protect them. Mai turned back to the laptop and typed again. No, she said. To chaperone. Chapter 9. The Belgrade Witch Project Taking cover in a copse of trees atop a hill, a kilometer away from the nunnery, my fisher watched the sun rise before she peered through binoculars at the Most Holy Sisters of St. Constantine and Empress Helena nunnery. After a half hour of watching, two stoop sisters in full habits emerged from the dormitory, heads bowed, arms tucked inside their sleeves. They shuffled toward the church and disappeared inside. Mai waited another half hour and saw nothing of them. She could risk getting closer. A breeze stirred the tendrils, escaping her braid, and something moved in the trees. Hand on her gun, she peered among her surroundings, fighting off the feeling someone watched. She held her breath and listened. From the road, no one could see the car she left behind, a rockfall. It was the wind, nothing more. She was alone. The breeze ebbed and picked up again, but the sound didn't repeat. The itch between her shoulder blades didn't abate, however. She stayed hidden a few more minutes and heard nothing more than her own steady breathing. Her study of the buildings below had shown her a way in, and she crept from her hiding place to head back to the car. For some reason, she paused to look at the new morning. Clear, beautiful, no hint below her lay a European city approaching chaos. And she wasn't a widow. Yet. However, there was the matter of Pishkatova and Alexei, naked in her bed. This time the lack of noise stopped her trek back to the car. No birds chirping. The breeze rustled the leaves, making them crackle. No, that wasn't right. She knelt for cover behind some scrub, eyes seeking what was out of the ordinary, what had made the birds stop singing. The deciduous trees were verdant from a wet spring, New leaves fresh and supple. They shouldn't crackle. Mai drew the beretta and gauntleted it. She dropped into a combat crouch and picked her way down the hill, the itch between her shoulder blades intensifying. A twig snapped behind her, so loud and close it had to be deliberate. Mai whirled, sighting the beretta where the sound had to have come from. Nothing. No one. The sun had climbed higher, but the thick foliage put her in gloom. A thick swirl of mist rose as the sun warmed the forest. Twisting in the sky, the mist seemed to move toward her like a living thing. Tree limbs bowed in the wind, reaching for her. But it wasn't mist. 
it was smoke, bearing the smell of burning metal and rubber. Time to get out of here, she thought, and so much for having watched the Blair Witch Project video with Natalia a few months back. My rarely got spooked, but this thick forest, the fact her car was likely on fire, had rattled her. She tamped down the urge to run and headed for where she'd left the car. Once she reached it, she holstered the gun and muttered, Fuck. This was the second car totaled, and one was in police custody. The directorate's budget weenies would deliver a lecture when she submitted this expense report. She approached the car until the heat stopped her. Someone had broken the windows and poured an accelerant inside, where most of the fire burned. There were footprints from some off-label generic boot in the dirt around the car. She followed the boot prints with her eyes, and they disappeared into the forest. It seemed only one person was involved. The Russians. It had to be. They must have spotted her on the road leading to the nunnery, and one of them had set fire to the car and pursued her in the forest. She'd encountered sadistic Russians before. But she'd seen no sign of them when she'd watched the nunnery. Someone left behind to clean up their presence here? With a sigh, she tossed the now useless key fob into the burning car, re-entered the forest, and picked her way down to the nunnery with care. Halfway down, Mai heard the muffled explosion that told her the fire had reached the gas tank. All right, we'll take a little break there, do the usual commercial. The first book in the trilogy, which is Welcome to Belgrade, has been out for a week now, since this is October the 8th when you're listening to this, and I've been pretty pleased. I've had a couple of my fans, that seems so weird to say that I have fans, but they've sent me pictures of them reading the book, and one even gave it a thumbs up, which made me feel pretty good. So it's available at amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan. And Phyllis Duncan is all one word, and it's spelled P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-D-U-N-C-A-N, no capital letters. And book two, which I'm reading from now, is available for pre-order. It launches on November the 1st, but you can pre-order now and have your copy, again, magically appear on November 1st. And you can pre-order it at https colon backslash backslash tinyurl.com slash DT pre-order. The D, the T, and the P are capitalized. Each of these books is around uh, 52,000 to 55,000 words, so easily read before the next one comes out. So if you've already gotten Welcome to Belgrade, you'll be done with it in time for Dangerous Truths to come out. And the same will be true for the December 1st release of the final book, which is entitled And Justice for All. So let's talk a little bit about that process 
of putting out a book a month. It's called flash publishing. There's another term for it as well, which kind of escapes my my memory right now, which is not surprising. I went to a workshop several years ago at a local writers event. The Roanoke Regional Writers something. Anyway, it takes place at Hollins University down in Roanoke, Virginia, and, and not far from me at all. And a person there did a workshop on flash publishing, and I was fascinated by it. And I was also fascinated by the fact that she took the time to prepare all three of her books, which was a YA urban fantasy, very popular genre. Um, in fact, she had done, she had spent several months marketing this trilogy while it was still being edited and and so forth. So she would have all three books ready at her publication date. And her marketing had been so effective that she had over 10,000 followers on social media. And that translated to not 10,000 sales, but pretty close to it, she said. So she had a very effective campaign. And I honestly wish she would have talked a little bit more about her, about her marketing strategy because I, that's the thing that I completely suck at. It's not one of my skills. I would rather write and just keep on writing. But when you're an independent author, your marketing and promotion is all your responsibility. So anyway, I got this idea that I would try this flash publishing project. And I knew that I had something in the works that would be perfect for it. And that was this trilogy, Self-Inflicted Wounds. I hadn't I hadn't worked on it for several years because I had been concentrating on writing new material and working on the four books that became A Perfect Hatred. So I pulled it out, dusted it off, did some work, did some editing on it, and sent it out to some beta readers and got excellent feedback on things that I needed to fix and expand. And that ended up enhancing the manuscript tremendously. But still, it took several years from the time I had that workshop until that first book came out on October 1st. Again, I was focusing on the production of A Perfect Hatred and working on self-inflicted wounds, getting it ready when I had spare time, which frankly, wasn't too often. But it all came together. The manuscripts were complete, completely edited by me and then by my personal editor, and they were ready to go about, oh, the end of last year, I would say. And that's when I began to plan when I was going to do this. I knew my focus mainly had to be on A Perfect Hatred, getting those ready for their various publication dates, and I decided to put it off until October, November, and December of this year. Of course, at the time, I didn't know that I would go into 
self-isolation and social distancing in the middle of March and am still pretty much practicing that because we keep having these little flare-ups in the state that I live in and I'm just not going to risk getting the COVID-19. So everything finally came together. I sat, settled on the publication dates and dealt with the covers, which for me is always is a trial because in this case, I wanted a very minimalist cover for all three of them. And I didn't want photos or graphic artist work. I, I, again, wanted them to be very minimalist. So I did them, I did them myself, myself with consultation with a couple of graphic artists who, who helped me with composition. But they were all ready to go. However, I may have said this before, I will never do flash publishing again. It's just a lot to do packed into a short amount of time particularly with the marketing and figuring out when to stop marketing book one and when to start marketing book two. And then when am I going to have time to market all three of them? And I don't have the opportunity to have any sort of in-person book events, not for probably several more months. So this is all going to have to be done online. There may be a Zoom meeting where I do a book launch after all three of them come out, I may do an event with, you know, some trivia and some prizes and things like that. So we'll see. But that's how I came to publish three novels in three months. So maybe there's a, a blog post or an essay in that somewhere, how to publish three novels in three months. But as I said, it was a good experience. It taught me a lot, but I'm not doing it again. So there. All right. Why don't we get back to reading a few more chapters from Dangerous Truths. And then we'll close it out. I'm trying to make these episodes not go over an hour. I know I had a couple of them that did. So I'm trying to make sure that they're between... 35 and 45 minutes, just because I figure you don't want to hear me babble for an hour. So I'm trying not to do that. But let's go back to reading from Dangerous Truths. Chapter 10, Easy Money. Kolya Antonov parked his car out of sight in the loading area of the sports arena. He killed the engine but sat for a moment, glad for the silence. The paper bag on the seat beside him contained the personal effects of Ivan, Vanya, Efimovich, Kishvili. A wallet, a gold money clip with various currencies, some pocket change, a watch, a gold chain with an orthodox crucifix, and a small folding picture frame, holding his army photograph on one side and the picture of a young woman on the other. Like many Russian soldiers, Vanya had tired of low army pay and constant deployments to Chechnya, 
and had deserted at his first opportunity, Kolya's offer of easy money. Despite his dalliances at White Nights, Vanya loved his girl back home. Kolya knew that because Vanya had sent almost every ruble of what he'd earned so far back to her. Vanya's only non-military talent was painting, especially historical or fairy tale scenes on small lacquer boxes. His work was whimsical and of high detail through his use of tiny, slim brushes. He'd warned the others to leave his brushes alone, and there were a dozen boxes in various stages of completion. They'd never be completed now, nor would he and his girl get to America, to an artist colony where he could forget he was ever a soldier, where he and his girl could have had healthy, well-fed babies. Before he got to Maudlin, Kolya reminded himself the hands that had created beautiful works of art had also killed Kolya's uncle. Kolya had used money to loosen police tongues, and they told him a Russian banker had killed Vanya after Vanya wounded him. The banker had fallen into the Danube, and the police were waiting for a body to surface. As sick as he felt to learn Dyadia was dead, as impossible as that was to contemplate, he hated himself for Vanya's death, for his promise of easy money. Nothing was ever easy, and he should have remembered that. Easy money. Words to haunt Kolya a long time. Enough for you to get out of Russia. Start a new life, if that's what you want he had told all of them, his men, whom he'd commanded in Chechnya or as peacekeepers in Bosnia and Kosovo. Were he still Vanya's legitimate commanding officer, it would be his duty to write to the girl back in Russia, explaining how bravely Vanya had died. Kolya would insist Cassandra Brown give him the remainder of Vanya's share of the blood money, and he would send it to the girl. Not a replacement for Vanya, but it would ease the pain. Kolya picked up the paper bag and left the car. He navigated the dim corridors beneath the stadium to the athlete's locker room and through that to the coach's office he'd taken as his quarters. Sasha sat there at Kolya's makeshift desk, a series of stacked crates. The headphones for his Walkman were on Sasha's ears his fingers tapping out a rhythm on one of the crates. He looked up and saw Kolya. Smiling, he removed the headphones and put the Walkman aside. Brother, Sasha said, the others said you got a phone call and lift. What is it? Our next target? Vanya had my phone number on a card in his wallet, Kolya said, weariness slumping his shoulders. See, Sasha said, I told you not to worry. Where is he? Gone to bed? The police called me to claim his body. They found him in the trunk of a car, rented to a Russian banker named Bukharin. Vanya's neck was broken. Kolya willed the image of that from his thoughts, and Sasha paled. Vanya? Dead? Yes. What did you tell the police? 
I paid them a lot of money to pretend our work permits are all in order and that Vanya was a construction worker killed in a robbery. I, I cannot believe it. Vanya, dead. Kolya studied his brother, satisfied the grief was real. And, so it seems, our uncle as well. Vanya knifed him and he fell into the Danube. The police are waiting for the body to surface. The grief morphed into a smug smile, and that broke Kolya's control. He went to Sasha and backhanded him. Sasha stood, almost upsetting the crates. Do not slap me like a child, he forced from his clenched teeth. Do not act like one, and I will not. You ordered Vanya to kill family. It was not personal, Kolya. Bukharin and his wife stand in the way of our success. That is all I was thinking. Yes, but what were you thinking with? Oh, what? What do you mean? You think I do not know who you are fucking? You are so obvious a blind man could see it. Kolya stood nose to nose with his brother. Why did you not do it yourself? Dyadya would have recognized you, trusted you. It would have been easy to slip a blade home, pull a trigger. You sent someone else. Was that her idea? It was delegation, Sasha said, defiance ebbing. She said good leaders know when to delegate. And who said you are a leader? Cassie said I have potential. Sasha said, chin thrust out, shoulders squaring. <laughs> you have a long way to go, Sasha, before I consider you a leader. Now, I think it best we do not let the others know all the circumstances of Vanya's death. I would not want them to lose respect for your leadership. Kolya walked to his bunk and sat down, unlacing his boots. Kolya, you worry like a babushka. Everything is fine. You do not know your aunt. Nothing will be fine when she decides to come after us. Well, brother, Cassandra knows her and is not afraid of her. I'm not afraid of Tatya. I respect her. But in her last act on earth, she will kill us for what we did to Dyadya. We did nothing. It was Vanya, and he is dead. Who needs to know more than that? Get out and let me get some sleep, Sasha. Go fuck your whore. I do not want to see your face for at least two days. Come back sooner and I will give you to Tatya myself. Kolya kicked off his boots and lay back on his bunk, eyes closed. He heard Sasha's angry footsteps stomp away. Chapter 11 Temporary Redemption. Mai's Reke had shown her an opening in the stone wall at the rear of the religious complex. At one spot it was less than a meter tall, a quarter of its original height, and it provided an easy entry. Of course, that entry put her in the graveyard, and her Irish came up. However, the grass in the cemetery was tall, and the gravestones provided excellent cover for her approach to the church itself. 
Flat against one wall of the church, she studied the buildings closest to her, what had to be a rectory with a small, attached dormitory. The mother superior, or whatever the Orthodox called her, would have lived in the rectory. A smaller dormitory had likely housed the nuns on her staff, higher in the pecking order than the other sisters. The door to the rectory stood open, a black rectangle against the gray stone, and it invited her inside. Mai drew the beretta and entered without hesitation. The entryway was empty of furniture, and morning light through the ornate stained-glass windows threw rainbows across the floor and walls. What had been Mother Superior's office, a large room with an elaborate fireplace and more stained glass, was empty now, too. Someone had even taken down the crucifixes. But the floor was immaculate and dust-free, as was what had been the mother's bedroom. There was an old, ornate bed there, made up with sheets. Someone had recently occupied the rectory, but a check of the cupboards and wardrobe revealed nothing left behind. There was a faint odor, furniture polish overlaid with something cloying, redolent, Incense? Not likely. Mai leaned down and sniffed a pillow. Perfume, neither cheap nor expensive. One of the Russians, likely the team leader because Russians liked the perks of authority, had had the balls to bring a whore into a nunnery under the sisters' noses. There was something to admire in that. Beneath a plain window overlooking the ground sat an antique desk and chair. Mai searched all the drawers but found nothing. No scraps of paper or a journal left behind. You could always hope for things to be that easy, but they rarely were. Mai glanced out the window and ducked aside. Below, in a small garden, the two sisters she'd seen earlier worked some sprouting plants with hoes. Mai tiptoed from the rectory and into the dormitory. Seven rooms showed signs of recent occupation, cleanliness and neatly made beds. Eight occupied rooms. Alexei had counted at least six from his sojourns to white nights. A team lead and seven men. A good size for a quick strike force, maybe split into two teams, or even further into two-man teams. The nuns had taken care of them, kept the rooms clean, made the beds cooked for them, probably. Given the lack of dust, the rooms had emptied in the last day or so, and the tracer's battery had died in the interim, unable to pinpoint their current location. Beretta down at her side, Mai headed for the church itself. She doubted she'd find anything there, but she couldn't leave without searching it. The sun was higher now, and she again had the distinct feeling someone watched her. She slowly turned in a circle, taking in the layout of the nunnery and its grounds. Nothing. No one. The gloomy forest had left her edgy, and someone had torched her car, after all. Another look around, and Mai entered the church. Cooler and dim inside, she let her eyes adjust. Once, Alexei had taken Natalia to a Russian Orthodox church in northern Virginia, 
and my recalled Orthodox churches were divided into three areas. The narthex, where she'd entered, the nave, and the sanctuary. Candles in two tall candelabras. No, there was another religious word for them, but it escaped her. The candles cast light on the saints painted on the walls and up onto the vaulted ceiling. There were no flowers, but Mai didn't know if that was an orthodox affectation. The flickering candlelight gave the dour-faced saints a false sense of movement, and their eyes seemed to follow her as she passed through a doorway in the wall separating the narthex from the nave. More candelabras. Candles sputtered and sizzled. Wax splattered to the floor, sounding like dripping blood. And the image of the drops of Alexei's blood on the dock filled her head. All seating was along the sides of the nave, but Mai stayed away from the center aisle. Above the nave was a dome where a huge painting of Christ looked down on her. Sorry, God, she thought, but the gun stays in my hand. Somewhere in the church, a door creaked, and a breeze rushed in. Many of the candles guttered and went out. Mai took cover in an alcove, the space for the choir, she believed. A clatter of metal and a lessening of light in the nave meant one of the metal candelabras had tipped over. The noise reverberated in the sanctuary, and Mai heard ragged breathing. No, more like panting. Egypt, she chided herself. That's you. Mai slipped further back into the dark, behind a row of chairs, and listened. Footsteps, soft-soled ones, but she couldn't tell whether they were headed for or away from her. Ducking low, she left the alcove and took cover behind a long row of tall, backed chairs lining one wall of the nave. A pair of slender legs in fatigue pants and hiking boots passed by, headed toward the wall between the nave and the sanctuary. As the footsteps continued away from her, Mai duck-walked behind the chairs toward the narthex. She caught a whiff of gasoline fumes. Her arsonist. She heard a series of puffs, and the lighting dimmed even more. Why blow out the candles and reduce them to the same disadvantage? No, this wasn't tactical. This was psyops. From the front of the nave, someone wailed, a guttural ululation. That faded and shrieking began. Jesus wept, she thought. I'm trapped in a church with a crazy Russian. Fuck this. She raised to a crouch and ran the length of the nave to the doorway of the narthex, across that to the entrance, and she was outside in the light, the sun on her face. Hysterical laughter replaced the shrieking, and all the childhood stories she'd heard about spirits and the banshee came back to her, raising goose flesh from her scalp to her fingertips. The next sound made her jump. Church bells, discordant, muffled, off-key. Jesus, wept, she muttered again. 
A shuffling sound to her left, movement in her peripheral vision, she pointed the Beretta in that direction but lowered it quickly. The two aged sisters approached as fast as their bent frames and arthritis would allow. The bell ringing ceased, the air pulsing with the fading notes. The nuns stopped a few feet away, huddled against each other, fear etching their lined faces. Mai's throat was dry, and all she could do was croak. The sisters encompassed her, urged her away from the church. She was only too happy to go. All right, we'll stop there. That scene, that last scene in the church, was inspired by the Blair Witch Project. If you'll recall, that was a rather famous quote-unquote horror movie from the late 1990s, which I watched with my sister-in-law up in Connecticut, and we weren't terribly impressed with the horror aspect of it. I thought it was kind of a jumbled mess, but I did remember the scenes where the, you know, in the dark where the camera was pointed toward one of the characters' faces and the fear that was on her face. And Orthodox churches are very intimidating places if you're not Orthodox. Even if you're Catholic, like I, I was raised Catholic, but an Orthodox church is, is like I said, very intimidating. Those, those saints that, that are painted on the walls and go up the ceilings. And there's usually a Christ figure at the, at the very apex of the dome looking down at you. And it's, if, if you're not religious before you, you'll, (laughs) you will be after you're, in an Orthodox church for a while. They're very, very beautiful, beautiful places. And I wanted to incorporate that feeling of being inside an intimidating place with with someone who's stalking you. And my truly believes that it's one of the Russians, but it's not. And we'll find out who it was later. So again, Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate, again, all the people who are listening to this. If you want to chat about the podcast or ask me any questions, you can go to my Facebook author page, which is www.facebook.com slash U-N-S-P-Y writer and post a comment ask a question. I'd be happy to answer it. And again, hope you enjoy this. Stay safe. Keep yourself socially distant. Wear your mask. And remember, keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.